to go by PowerPoint. As Sean said, you generally don't stay with it anyway, <laughs> uh, which is true, all right? But we will see how we go. So it should be on the screen as we go. But before we go there, I just want to give you a bit of background because <coughs> as um, Gary mentioned, when we first, uh, I first sent an email, I was in Vanuatu, I think, and I'd been teaching on Daniel and Revelation, and uh, the thought in my mind came from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, his vision, where uh, Daniel said, <coughs> the God of heaven has shown you what is to come. But my thoughts were altered after that because, uh, as Gary said, sent an email back, what are you, are you going to cover the man of sin, the Antichrist, you know, this kind of thing? I said, no, <coughs> my aim is to cover, and you had it on this, the introduction to the camp. Very well done, if you would have noticed. The text was there, Hebrews 2 verse 5. There was a crown of thorns and there was a kingly crown. And that, uh, behold the man, there are two aspects about that man that we want to cover on the weekend that are precious to every believer. That is, he is a great high priest and he is enthroned uh, in the majesty in heaven now, making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It is this man we, are, we want to behold as we come to the scriptures. I'm just going to give you a little bit of introduction before we start <coughs> so that it gives you an understanding how I'm approaching what we're going to look at. And that is this. There are principles in scripture where God teaches and his manner of teaching is consistent with his nature. <clears throat> One of the little statements made in scripture that is used by Moses in Deuteronomy, it's used by Jesus in Luke 18, Matthew 18, and it's used by Paul. And these are the words. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now when it's done in Deuteronomy, it's the issue of defining manslaughter or murder, which we have today in our courts. If you kill someone accidentally, it's manslaughter. But if you deliberately do it, it's murder. So right back in the Old Testament, you required not one witness. You required two or three witnesses to justify the person being charged with the crime. So when Jesus was dealing with the issue of forgiveness uh, amongst believers, he used the same principle. And he, he, he said, if he won't hear you, take a brother with you. And he used the, 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 the text, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, his second letter, in the closing scenes of that letter, he told them, I am coming to you a third time out of the mouth of two or three witnesses will every word be established. He said, I don't want to come to you with a, a, um, a disciplinary action. I don't want to come like that. He called on them to repent. So when we come to God's principles of teaching, it's amazing when you step into the book of Hebrews. I realise it is a immense subject and I am just touching the surface of the book of Hebrews. All right? But when you go through this initial part of the book of Hebrews, you will find that the Holy Spirit, to establish a truth, draws on two or three witnesses every time he's teaching a truth. Starting from chapter 1, you're going through chapter 1, chapter 2. It's his method of conveying the power of the word of God. It is consistent. Where it says something in one place, it will say it in another and it will say it in another. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now if you'll take your Bibles, the other truth that I want to convey across is this. That when God is dealing with a subject, he takes a text and puts it in its context always. We have a saying in theological colleges, you take a text out of context, you make it a pretext. 
All right, simple as that. You take it out, you don't look at where it comes from, and you can teach what you like. But it's a pretext, it's not a context. It's not the truth. So the danger is there. So when we come to the theme of the camp, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 5. And this is the text that I sent to <coughs> Gary, which he's expanded a little bit on in his presentation, which was good. All right, you're in Hebrews 2 and verse 5. There's another mic. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm, getting used, I'm getting used to having a... I, I will need it and then I'll probably need instruction how to work it. All right? <laughs> Hebrews 2. Uh, <laughs> Hebrews 2 and verse 5. <clears throat> if you will think about it, it is an amazing verse. Because Hebrews 2 verse 5, I'm reading from the NIV. We'll change a little bit with your text. It just says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So I ask you, what is the theme of the book of Hebrews? Does he tell you in that verse? Do you pick up anything in that verse that he tells you the theme of this book? He says, we are speaking. Can you listen to Paul? He's writing it. Uh, some of you will challenge that. I'll just put it out and leave it there, all right? The writer of the Hebrews says, we are speaking. What's he speaking about? The world to come. Is that something we should be very interested in? So this book is about... The world come, we are speaking of this book. And he says, it's not to angels he has subjected the world to come. Tell me, in the world you live in today, is it subject to angels? You live in this world, do angels have anything to do with what's going on in this world? The Bible tells me we wrestle not against flesh and blood, we wrestle against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness from heavenly places. Do angels have anything to do with what's going on in this world? Look at the visitations of angels in your Bible and see what's happening. Tell me, how did Daniel know anything about what's to come? God sent the angel Gabriel to him twice to tell him. What about Ezekiel? What about Zechariah? Zechariah had seven visions all in one night. Amazing visions concerning the future of the nation of Israel when God determines to have mercy upon that nation after they have suffered for nearly 2,000 years. The whole prophetic future was ministered by angels to Zechariah. What about John the Baptist? What about his birth? What about Jesus' birth? Do angels have anything to do with what's going on in the world today? Do demon spirits operate in this world because they're fallen angels? What about when Ahab and Jehoshaphat... Sorry, it's not a mic. <laughs> <laughs> I get so used to handling a mic over this. <laughs> what about... <coughs> um, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. You know, they're sitting on their thrones, eh? And uh, these 400 prophets are there prophesying, of Baal, prophesying about the going up and to have victory and how it will happen and, and all that. And Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, is there any prophet of the Lord? He says, there's only one, but he speaks evil of me. He never has anything good to say about me. He said, I will not leave till we hear him. He was in prison. He said, go and get him out of prison and bring him. So Micaiah came. And when he came, I have said, do we go up? And he said, go up and prosper. Go up and prosper. Because the fellow going up with him said, this is what they're all saying. You agree with him. 
And Micaiah is mocking, go up and prosper, go up and prosper. And Ahab says, haven't I told you always to tell me the truth? He said, I saw all Israel on the hills scattered because the leader has fallen. And he turned to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never says anything good about me? Because he knew what the dream meant, what the vision meant. And, and he said, send him back to his prison, feed him on bread and water till I get back. And he turned to the crowd, if you get back, God has not spoken by me. And he said, I saw God on his throne. Listen carefully. I saw God on his throne. I saw the host of heaven gathered round that throne. And I heard God say, who will go for me and deceive Ahab so he will fall on the mountains? And one came forward and said this, these are demonic spirits as well as good angels of heaven. They're all gathered. This is the council of heaven. Don't tell me the Bible doesn't take us into heaven at times to see what goes on. It does. And so the council of heaven is sitting there and deciding a matter and God says, who will go? One stepped forward and said this, I'll do this. Another stepped forward and one said, I will. And he said, how? I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God said, go and you will prosper. It will take place. Remember the leader of those Baal worshippers went up to Micaiah, slapped him on the face and said, where did the spirit go from me to you? He said, when you go into your room alone, you will know. Feed him on bread and water. The Bible takes us, the world we are living in is subject to angels, but the Bible says God has not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we are speaking what is man that you are mindful of him? Now man will have no position in heaven was it not for the man, Christ Jesus. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, he's got a family. And that family he's going to present to his father as the father's children whom he has brought to glory, to reign with him. Talk about a world to come. And we get so occupied in the world and what's going on here, and there's enough in this world to occupy your minds now. Someone approached me on the street when we were coming here, and it's a valid question. Are you going to speak about Ezekiel 38 and 39? Why? Because you see scenes happening in the nations, you see all kinds of things taking place and scenes seem to be establishing. <coughs> and it's true, things are happening. But what is the mainstay of our solidity in a world where everything is being crumbling, everything is being challenged, where Christians are being brought under persecution if they stand for truth today. Doesn't matter where we are. What's going to hold us? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Where's that anchored? Firm and deep in the Saviour's love. That's the anchor. He is in heaven. That's where we're going. And he's going to take us there. That's his promise. We will see him as he is. So when we come to the world to come, of which this book is speaking, what does it speak about? God has spoken to us in Son. So how has he spoken? Two things. A great high priest, and an enthroned king in heaven. At the right hand of the majesty on high is where he is now. And the book of Hebrews takes this immense grasp from the Old Testament to ring out what you heard on that here, that, that song which comes from a long way back. All right? And which I happened to hear many, many years ago, and it ne it, it, I never failed to thrill when I think on the words of that song. He's a living revelation. Behold the man. And I thought about the one, 
Even Pilate shook before him. I thought, where did you get that from? It comes from the scripture. We'll go through, and if we get that far, I'll show you. Pilate shook before him. Let's get into the scriptures, and let's begin to see what it means. Behold the man. So take your Bible, and we're in the Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 3 first of all. That's where we will commence. So we're on the introduction. Do you want to turn it? Huh? Yeah, I'll use it as a mic if I don't. <laughs> and I'll push the wrong buttons. And a, Yeah, that one's next. If it doesn't go, just click it again. I'll tell you this. It's difficult for me. I do it on my own computer, which programming is not up with some other computers. And then I print it out on using another computer. Then I come here and find out I've missed out a last line because it hasn't graduated to the vision. And so we'll just see how we go, all right? <laughs> so we're in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Let's read it through because I haven't put it on, on, the, on your uh, screen there. I'm reading from the NIV. King James starts off God himself, but in the NIV, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now comes a concentrated summary of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> After he had provided purification for sins, tell me, which Old Testament personage or, or calling was involved in sin? Dealing with sin. You had prophets, you had priests, and you had kings in your Old Testament. Callings by God. Which one is involved with the issue of sin? Priests. Which one uniquely could go behind the veil only once a year and never without blood? Only the high priest. So in view here we have the high priestly ministry of Jesus opened out before our eyes, but we're going to find out Aaron's order, while his ministry shadowed Christ's, his calling did not. Christ would come from another order, the order of Melchizedek. So the, the book of Hebrews, because it's written to the Hebrews, and who met Abram? And Abram in your Old Testament in Genesis, Abram the Hebrew. <laughs> that's, how, that's how he was known when he went after the kings that had taken off Lot. He's called Abram the Hebrew. So you're going right back. Who met Abram the Hebrew? Melchizedek, as he comes back. Who is he? He's priest of the Most High God. So you're introduced immediately in your New Testament, in your Old Testament, right at the beginning, after the flood, you have this man. I can pictures. All right. God has spoken in his son. Keep going down and we'll see how we go. Who is this man? The man Christ Jesus. One mediator between God and men. The man. Notice, the man. But wasn't he God? Yeah, he's God in the flesh, but he's the man. I keep going. He's the heir of all things. Why? Because he's the son of the Father. That is who he is. He's the only begotten of the Father. Keep going. And I'm taking it out of its readings. And I put it in blue because I'm going to emphasize certain things. Notice, through whom he made the universe. The word is eons, ages, the world is the King James. Through whom he made the universe. So who's it talking about? Through whom he made the universe. 
You've got God the Father who plans it all through whom Christ, He made the universe. So Christ is the Creator. Keep going. He is the radiance of God's glory and express image of His very person. What did Jesus say to Philip? Have I been so long time with you, Philip? Don't you know me? He that's seen me has seen the Father. The first miracle that he did, it says Jesus manifested forth his glory. He changed water into wine. He manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. He says, haven't, you, haven't I been so long with you, Philip? Don't you know me? He that's seen me has seen the Father. So he's the exact representation of the Father. But he's a man. And as man, he expresses the very nature of God. And only once did the veil come off on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Moses and Elijah appeared with him in glory, and God in heaven came across in Shekinah glory, and they feared as the cloud came round them, and his voice came from heaven, This is my beloved Son, hear you him. So keep going. Notice what it says next. Upholding all things. Tell me, how much is he the creator of? All things. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by him. So what's that include? All things. You will never leave anything out. What's that mean about angels? They are created beings. Angels are part of the six-day creation. And some people say, well, it's not in Genesis 1. Yes, it is. But if to understand it, we have to go elsewhere and we're going to do it if we get that far. But notice he is the sustainer, the holding together. Now, some of you will have done chemistry, the atom and the electrons and protons and neutrons and everything spinning around is all held together in a little world, an amazing world where there's more space than, than solid material and that's an atom. And the whole universe is arranged like that. And your body is made up of atoms. There's more, more space in your body than there is material. If you're made up of atoms, <laughs> it's God we're dealing with. He holds everything together. In whose hand is the breath of life, he said to Belshazzar. In, in his hands, he has your breath in his hands. So we have an amazing God presented to us out of this book of Hebrews. And I put this in. I'm taking it out of the book of Proverbs. Even a child is known by what he does. Is that true? You observe children. Now I watched one. We walked up the street today and someone walking with me. Werner. <laughs> was it Werner? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, that's a tantrum you're seeing. <laughs> the woman's trying to calm the child down. <laughs> Modern world we're living in. Bang! Stop it. No. <laughs> So that, that's the, the kind of thing. Even a child is known by... So in some areas of the world, children are not named till they reveal their character by actions. And then they're named. All right? So naming is, in some cultures, a very special, special, special time. So even a child is known by his actions. If that is true, how do you know God if it's not the same way? You know God by his actions, don't we? How do you measure whether someone is a Christian or not? <laughs> he says, <coughs> in Timothy, he says, the foundation of God stands sure. It has this seal on it. The Lord knows those that are his. That is, he will never make a mistake. Manward side, when we look, it says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's the identifying character. Paul said, 
I am thankful as I hear about you. The love that you have towards the Lord Jesus, the, the, the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus, and the love you show to all the saints, that's the fruit of the manifest presence of God who is holy in the life. That is evidence. So what about God? You know, and we are meant to know, God by his actions. So the world today is without excuse. Romans 1 tells me this. The world is without excuse. Why? Because they look at a created world. They identify it as having been made by the operating principles they observe in it, the functioning of how it happens, the amazing detail that goes into everything, in spite of the fact that sin's effects are present in it, you cannot but deny you're looking at a designed world. The mark of a designer is on the world we are living in. Every green leaf you see is a factory that our sugarcane mills cannot make any impression on. They don't even equal it for efficiency. But every green leaf you see out there is a process going on that is changing carbon dioxide and water into sugar and the food you eat. Every green leaf, it's going on, designed in the seed. And we still can't duplicate that process. We still don't really understand how it operates. In fact, we don't understand how water gets from, a, from the soil up into a, a tree 200 foot high, 100 foot high. How does the water get there? We have no understanding of the forces involved to get the water there. We don't. My background is science, all right? I'm an agriculturist. That I, that's what I did for some years before I did other things became a school teacher for biology and geology, all right? So when it comes to this world we're living in, <coughs> if a child is known by his deeds, should we know God by his deeds? So when we come to Romans 1 from verse 18 down to the end of that chapter, it tells us the, the world, God's anger, God's wrath is being expressed against those who suppress, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They won't let it out. They're suppressing the truth. You say, what truth? The truth of God as creator. It's manifest to them. They only have to look at it. But they have changed the truth of God into an object that can be worshipped. Creatures like creeping things, like animals. <coughs> You see, on most laboratories that you go in today, you will still see a scene on the wall of that laboratory and it will be a chimp, it will be an ape, a gorilla, and then a hominoid, a man closing, uh, holding a, a stone axe and then we're holding a spear and he's a bit more upright but he's hairy covered and he's dark by the way but finally the end product is a white man upright <coughs> And he is the height of development. That is racism at its highest. And even evolutionists have admitted that. All right, Stephen Jay Gould admitted that. He's dead now, but he wrote about our Australian Aborigines. And he said, <coughs> racism has always been present in the world. But observing what happened in Australia, he said when Darwin's book came out in 1859, Racism increased by magnitudes and that is the consequence in our land of what we did to the Aborigines. There are only missing links. They were sent to museums all over the world. Their skeletons were dug up, they were shot, they were skinned and all this went on under the name of science then. That's the history of our world. Benelong Point, when you come through in, in Sydney Harbour. Benelong, who was Benelong? He was an Aboriginal, whom Governor Philip tried to civilise. Put him in a little shack at night, shackled him up, but brought him out and tried to make him a white civilised person and taught him how to smoke, how to drink alcohol and all that kind of thing. That's Benelong. That's what we did. 
we have a sorry history in the treatment of the Aborigine. Why? Evolution taught us. We have a sorry history today about marriage, don't we? What's doing it? Teaching us, the animals teach us how to do things and now give us our value system. God never did. But we have a book that gives it. And God calls to account every person in this world who was born into this world and has never given the glory to him as creator. Forget about Redeemer, as creator. And what is our nation? A worshipper of Mother Nature. And since Mother Nature has act, not acted properly, it's now got another God. It's called climate change. Isn't it true? We have thrown God out of the scene. He never does anything in our world. He does not exist. And our value systems, we determine what we're going to do. We determine what's right and wrong. Why? Because if God made us, he sets the values. And if God made us, he will call to account every one he has made. That is a too sobering thought for too many people. So I'm going to take you through in this. And I put on there, he is called the maker of heaven and earth in the Psalms. The five times in the Psalms I've put four up. <coughs> the maker of heaven and earth. Do you believe it? All right? And that's a great comfort to Israel. He that keepeth Israel is in the same psalm. He doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And he keeps Israel. He doesn't slumber and sleep. You may think that there are a lot of threats about the nation of Israel. The God who keeps Israel doesn't slumber and doesn't sleep. Means he doesn't shut his eyes. He knows exactly what's going on. And he's told us the future because he knows the end from the beginning. It's all in the book. So we come to this amazing God whom we worship as creator, not as redeemer. You sang that hymn and sung many places over the world, translated into many languages. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works, the worlds that, that your hand has made. I see the stars and we're going to look tonight because I have a question. <coughs> when you come to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, which Gary read. What he does in saying, <coughs> he's not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak, but one in a certain place, he doesn't quote the psalm, one in a certain place said, what is man? Now that's an amazing question today. You ask anyone, what is man? What's your answer? What is he? Is he an animal? Or is he a creation in the image of God? That is a big issue today. It governs abortion, it governs euthanasia, it governs all kinds of value systems in our world. Our answer to what is man. But the, uh, the text goes on, what is man? That you m are mindful of him, you think of him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and you set him over the works of your hand. Now that primarily applies to Christ. It had, because you are in Christ, when you are brought into God's family by new birth and you are in Christ a new creation, you are part of the family. He is the heir and you are joint heirs with Christ something we never even dreamed would ever be possible when we lived in a world of sin with and darkness without hope. But that is the calling to every believer. That is what is there. So we have an amazing scene here. What is man that you are mindful of him? You know where that comes from? And here I'll go, I don't know time. I have very great difficulty with time because I never carry a watch. What is the time? Quarter past? Nine. I am supposed to finish at a quarter past nine. I will go quickly because I want you to grasp this tonight if possible. 
when the writer to the Hebrews writes here, what is man that you are mindful of, etc., he takes out of a text, takes this out, of a complete context called Psalm 8. He just pulls a section out. How do we know it's speaking of Christ primarily? Take your Bible, go across to Psalm 8. You're down in verse 3, or we'll go to verse 4. If you look at verse 4, you will have what's recorded in Hebrews. Verse 4 of Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, you crowned him with glory and honour. So that is there in Hebrews, true? but it's pulled out of this psalm. Go back up in your psalm and <coughs> you have an interesting thing, verse 2. In this same psalm that speaks of <coughs> this man, what is man, and about him. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Who quoted that? out of the lips of infants, babies, you have ordained praise, speaking, the, it's actually the son speaking to the father. So you can still shut up the avenger, shut up the one who's against this praise, this, out of the lips of infants, young, you have ordained praise to still Quieten, shut up in other words. The antagonism of the avenger. Where was that happening on earth? At a unique place in your scriptures, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the four days before the actual Passover is to take place because there is taken on the tenth day the Passover lamb is taken and is tested for perfection for four days because he's the Passover lamb. He comes into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. If you put your text together, the Gospels, he went into the temple, he looked round and he left and he spent the night at Bethany. But he came in the next morning, the thing he did on the way, but he came in and he turned their tables over, he chased them out, he drove them out. You've changed my house. You've made it a den of robbers. It's a house of prayer for all nations. He was angry. They said, what authority? How can you do this? And then the little children began to worship. Take your Bible and listen carefully. You're in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, and we're going to read from verse uh, 10. The first two verses are what happened on his entry. The last part is when he came in the next day, from verse 12. Matthew 21, notice verse uh, 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Uh, who is he? He's the mighty man called Jesus. Remember that song? He's the mighty man called Jesus. Who is this? The answer to that song, He's the mighty man called Jesus. It says this, The crowd answered, The crowd answered what? This is Jesus. Who is he? He's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Is that who he was? To the natural eye, yes. 
but to the enlightened by the Spirit of God? No. He was the son of David. The whole crowd in the temple here, the crowd that welcomed, they took him as the prophet, the man from Nazareth. Now go down in your text, verse 12. The next day is when this happened. Jesus entered the temple area. He drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Imagine that. You're in the midst of miraculous things taking place. You've got an angry saviour. He's driven these people out turned their tables over, made a terrible mess in the temple of God, which is their place of worship. And then they get the lame and the blind, those in desperate need are coming to him. But then you get an amazing thing recorded in your Bible. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, notice they saw the miracles, they saw it happening. And the children shouting in the temple area, what? Hosanna, who to? The son of David. They were angry. Tell me, who had spiritual understanding and who was in blind darkness? We understand from scripture that unless the Bible lifts the veil from our eyes as he has did from the Jews, we take him as just a man, a teacher, a prophet. No, no, no. He's the long-promised king who will reign over a kingdom forever. That's who he is. He is the son of David. The little children, the infants, the young, are crying out, Hosanna, save, we beseech thee, son of David. And they reacted. And what did Jesus say? Look at the words. Verse 16 says their response. They said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? Have you never read? You're going to find this mentioned systematically through this testing time of four days. Have you never read? Have you never read? And he said, have you never read? And he quotes from Psalm 8. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Tell me, is Psalm 8 prophetic? Who is it prophetic of? Christ. So we see him as creator and only the eyes the veil has been taken off by the spirit of God they don't see him as the man they see him as God in the flesh the future reign of a kingdom which will never end Hosanna to the son of David that's who you are amazing thing. Now I'll just go quickly here. When I was in Swan Hill earlier last year, you Victorians are blessed because of your number plates. <laughs> Some of them I totally disagree with. Victoria is the education state. I think all the wrong things come out of Victoria. <laughs> but I was doing Genesis 1 to 11 <coughs> and I happened to look at the number plate of the car that was taking us there. And I said, I want a photo of your number plate. All right? Now, I've looked at my... I'm here, and number plates vary in the photo. Some of them have what's on the flag. They have the Southern Cross and one star. Some of them just have five stars. I've observed your number plates, all right? <laughs> and the Southern Cross, as we call it, across the whole of the... Pacific, particularly south of the equator, particularly over the Pacific, many of the nations, many of them, right, have on their flags or on some part of their 
their uh, governmental position or anything. They will have the Southern Cross there. So <coughs> I took a photo of it and I wanted it because you actually preach the gospel through all your number plates that have that on. And you may know they're trying to change the flag. You know the new flag will not have the Southern Cross on it. Why? The same reason as the Chinese are revising their script because the old Chinese language had the gospel in the old Chinese script. The same reason we as a nation are going to have a hymn, our national anthem, 40,000 years we've been here. All right? So you're seeing change take place? You're seeing evolution affect our whole thinking? Aren't you? It's no longer a six-day creation about 6,000 years ago. It's got millions and millions of years to it. Now tell me, <coughs> David wrote this psalm, and I am fascinated, and I'm going to ask you, have you ever done it? In this Psalm 8, he says, When I consider your heavens, your means ownership. They're his because he made them. So David is speaking under the Spirit of God. When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars, it's, he calls it the work of your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have ordained. Ordained means set in order. Now tell me, 6,000 years ago, if you had been on this earth here and you looked up to the heavens, would you see the same stars then as you see now? Would you have seen the Southern Cross? Would you have seen the two pointers? Would you have seen the Pleiades? Would you have seen Orion? Would you have seen Maseroth and her cubs? Would you have seen these because they are mentioned in the oldest book in your Bible, the book of Job? As far as they knew them. They had the same names as we've got today. Pleiades is the seven sisters. Orion is there. I need someone here who on a clear night can go out there and point to you the stars. Give them Andromeda, give them the Southern Cross, give them the pointers. Have you ever, David said, when I consider your heavens. So he looked at the heavens and I began to think about the Southern Cross because <coughs> I saw it on your number plates and I thought, wow, you got a message in Victoria from your number plates, a real message. And I don't think we use it enough. All you've got to do is take your science book and look at the Southern Cross. All right? What do you see? How many stars in the Southern Cross? Five. Now you take a science book and you by degrees of brightness, they're called, according to the Greek alphabet, alpha, beta, gamma, epsilon and delta. They're the degrees of brightness. You take your Southern Cross and it will have alpha at the top and you'll have... Yeah, uh, there it is in, in diagrammatic form. Uh, good. Colsack is the black area. If you go up there at night, look towards the south east, down that, I don't know, I think it's down that way somewhere. <laughs> Fair enough? All right. You look down there, look up in the sky on a clear night, and you will see the Southern Cross. All right. And you will see there are five stars. There's one at the top, there's Two, alpha, beta, gamma, that go across. Then there's the bottom one, and then there's the one in the side there, epsilon. So you have what is called, all over the world, the Southern Cross. I go to the internet, all right? Some of you search the internet, don't tell me you don't. So I want to know about the Southern Cross. What do you find about the Southern Cross on the internet? The Southern Cross was visible in the Northern Hemisphere. They knew it existed. But about the time of Christ and his crucifixion, the heavens happened to shift and it becomes visible in the southern hemisphere. Did you hear me clearly? I'm not. I'm telling you what the internet says and I've got no reason to argue with it because they're scientists and they're looking at the movement of the heavens. So it shifted. 
So it's visible only in the southern hemisphere after about the time Christ died. And I read of those early sailors who crossed the equator and came down into the Pacific and they were thrilled to see what? The Southern Cross. And if there's one set of stars that has carried a message to the islands of the Pacific, which is where I I have operated in for nearly 30 years now, the message of the cross has had a profound effect. It changed the Fijians from a bloodthirsty, cruel. If I told you the things they did, they were terrible. And it transformed them. Only one missionary in Fiji was killed and eaten. And many of the other missionaries stood between the warring tribes to stop their battles. Only one mission, missionary, Thomas Baker. I know his history. <coughs> he turned to Vanuatu and it's bloodstained. Bloodstained with people from the western islands of Scotland, where Trump comes from. They sent missionary after missionary down. And I know the, way, the story that most moved me was a woman whose oldest boy came down as a missionary to Vanuatu and word came back he had been killed and eaten. And she was sorrowed greatly by it. She sent her other son. They did to him what they did to the first son. The funeral she wept and they tried to comfort her. And she said, it's not not because I've lost that son. I have no more to send. I thought, wow, what a missionary heart existed when God's burden of getting the gospel out lay upon the nations, as it did, because their area of Scotland, a very harsh area, had seen revival after revival, due a lot to praying women. And they had sent missionaries out. And I know <coughs> John Williams, who's called the Apostle to the Pacific from the LMS, that's John Wesley's missionary group. That's where he was killed, on the beach of Aramanga. He was there with some others with him from the Cooks. Or Tahiti, I wasn't sure. Huh? Samoa. Samoa. He was there with one from Samoa. And they said, you, you come across it. They drew a line. You cross that line, we'll kill you. He said, I've come with the gospel of Christ. He crossed the line and they killed him. It is stained with blood. Tell me, the cross got any message? Is it costly to get it out? The southern nations below the line of the equator across the Pacific, I have observed, have been markedly affected by the gospel message. I'm in areas up in Papua New Guinea which have only come with the gospel message after the Second World War. And there are areas now still where they have not heard the gospel. There are a lot of Bible translators in there. Is it having an effect? The islands of the sea will sing. And they do. uh, Old Brother Qatar, he was a missionary principal of Bible College in Fiji, he told me, he said, in the Solomons, when he was there, to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to see every house in the village with a light on and to hear singing coming from those houses. Why? The gospel had totally changed. (coughs) Have we lost our message? I was thinking. The Bible College happens to be called, in Australia, used to be called Southern Cross. Hey? You know the Bible College Contumba when Brother Morgan was here? Used to be called Southern Cross. What is it called today? No, no. It's got a different name. Yeah, then, it became, then it became Southern Cross. Now it's got a different name. What is its name? It never hit me till I was in a Bible study a week ago, a week ago. And someone 
really opened my eyes. That someone who'd been through the University of Adelaide because he told me what was over the entrance to the university he was in, which is the Southern Cross, and, and the Latin, what it meant. The Southern Cross, the light will shine. That's in the, in the university he went in in Adelaide. Alpha Crucis. Isn't that the name of the Bible College now? Do you know it? Evidently you don't. Huh? That is the old Commonwealth Bible College, the Assembly of God Bible College that Iron Morgan used to be principal at. Is now called Alpha Crucis. Its name is changed from Southern Cross. What does it mean, Alpha Crucis? It's the top star in the Southern Cross. That's the Alpha. All right? You see it there? Now there's a cross. This is out of a science book. This has nothing to do with Christians. All they've done is put the cross on it. What message do you get from that cross? What message do you get? What is that cross telling you? Are the heavens the result of a big bang billions of years ago? Or are they the handiwork of an almighty God? Are they designed? Are the heavens designed? I don't go into all the things about black holes and all kinds of things, all right? I'm not involved in astrophysics and I don't understand it, all right? But as a simple person, as a farmer, lying on my back, like David, when I consider your heavens, have you ever lain on your back, got out of the city lights, because I live in the country where there are no lights, our nearest neighbour is on a hill way over there, and another one is on a hill way over there. There are no city lights, and when there is no moon, it's a beautiful heaven. All right? So you can lie on your back, and you will see now things going across the sky which weren't there before, all right? You'll see a lot. But you will look out on that heavens, and David did just that. When I consider your heavens, have you ever done it? Lain on your back looked at them and asked the question, because I did as a young man and I didn't have answers. Where did it come from? Who put it there? Why is it there? Twinkle, twinkle, little star. I learned a thing in Sunday school, not in Sunday school, in school. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Up above the world so bright, shining like a candle in the night, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Have you ever done that? Now you've got lots of answers from the science world and let me tell you they're wrong. You are looking at a designed heavens. Because he is strong in power, not one fails. When you look up there, the one who created that universe upholds its message. The Southern Cross has always been there as a testimony to the crown of thorns on the Saviour's head. That should be the message of Alpha Crucis College. He was made a curse for us. Cursed is the ground. It will bring forth thorns. He was made a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's not me, that's the Bible. But your Bible says, your, your heavens say exactly the same thing. We don't need the heavens. We've got the book. But have we lost the message? It's an unchanging message because it's an unchanging heaven you're looking at. The Pleiades are still there as they were for Job. Orion is still there as they were for Job. He asked Job, do you understand the laws of heaven? The influence of Pleiades, can you lose the influence? Can you do this, Job? What can you do? Now that's a challenge to the world today. What can you do? 
Who controls Pleiades? The maker of Pleiades. And man can't do it. There are mysterious things written into your Bible to show us the immense power of the God we worship. Is that the God we worship? Is that the God? Now just go back one. Go back, uh, was it? Oh, I keep going down. The pictures, uh, the one before the cross. Keep going down. Yeah, that one. All right. Now your task. You're lying on your back. That's what you're seeing. Can you pick up the Southern Cross? Because you'll look out there some nights and it's hard to see. Other nights, very easy to see. Can you point with the thing, Margaret? Uh, he's got it. All right. First thing you pick up is two pointers. You see the two bright stars? They're called the pointers. Right, go across to the right and down, lying on its side. It's not upright, on its side. Have you got it? Can you point it out, please? Yeah, the dark patch is there. Look across to the right of the dark patch. The Southern Cross is lying on its side. That's it. That's the dark patch called the cul sac. There's the top one is up to your right. No, up, that's the top one. Then the two side ones, that one and that one. Then the one at the feet, there. Then the one in the side, the lighter one there. That is the Southern Cross. So when you lie down tonight and you go out there and it was a bit cloudy, you might not pick it up. I don't think there's a moon out there. <coughs> When you go out there, lie on your back and look and say, that was what Abraham could look at. That's what I'm looking at. God put it there. What's it mean? What's it mean? This is Charles Wesley's hymn. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary's tree. They pour effectual prayers they strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. Did Wesley have a grasp of understanding of the cross? Why are there five bleeding wounds? Because there is a southern cross. And why are there two pointers? Because when you go to your science book, on those two stars, there is an arrow covering those two stars. They're called the pointers in science, in astronomy. Not astrology, astronomy. They point to the top of the cross where that star is. He was made a curse for us. I'll just take you to one more thought before we go to show you how powerful these things are. Remember I said the Mount of Transfiguration was the only place where Jesus unveiled his glory, whose glory was unveiled. It says, Moses and Elijah stood with him. They were in glory. The disciples had gone to sleep. They woke and they, this is the scene. And they heard them talking. Your Bible tells you that. They were discussing his death his departure, he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The disciples listened. And they're listening to Moses. Who's Moses? You've got all the law. You've got Elijah. Who's he? He represents all the prophets. And the subject matter of all the prophets and Moses is the cross the sufferings of Christ. That's the subject matter. That is our gospel. That is the, to present the cross as it was meant to be understood. He was made a curse for us. He had to redeem those who were under the law because the law cannot save. It must be by grace. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So you have two pointers. Where are they pointing? The head of the cross. 
I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul said. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in trembling. But I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Tell me, have you got a great high priest? I trust as we go through this week, this not this week, these couple of days, this so great salvation which he has accomplished on our behalf as great high priest will guarantee to us that one day on the virtue of his work you will live and reign with him forever. Amen. Finish there. God bless you. We will continue with this later.